0: Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast. Today, COVID-19, how are we doing? Just under 5 million people in the UK have the virus, a record high. Despite that, most people in England will no longer be eligible for free tests. The UK government boasts of its world-beating vaccination programme. But 1,116 people have died in the last week within 28 days of a positive Covid test. And our death rate, that's deaths per million people, is higher than in Spain portugal germany ireland and the netherlands it begs the question of whether england in particular let the handbrake off too early with people no longer required to self-isolate even if they have covid and mask wearing no longer required has the freedom of people with underlying health conditions been compromised by Freedom Day? We'll be joined shortly by Deepti Gurdasani, who's a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University, London, an expert in clinical epidemiology. And Sophia Nah, who lost her dad to COVID and who now campaigns for COVID-19 bereaved families for justice. But we'd also welcome your thoughts as well. If you're listening live, you will need to use your phone just tap the microphone icon in the bottom left hand corner of your screen and we'll let you through and if you've got something meaningful to say or a question to ask we'd be delighted to hear from you if you're listening via catch up on the byline times podcast you can email any comments to goldberg radio at gmail.com Before we get cracking, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast come from the Byline Times and were funded by ordinary people like you. That allows us to report without fear or favour. So please take out a subscription or a membership if you can. You get more details over at BylineTimes.com. That's at BylineTimes.com our fabulous news-breaking website. Let's bring in Dr. Deepti Gurdasani at this point. Deepti, just sum up how you think we are doing. We've got record cases of coronavirus, yet free testing for most people, in England anyway, has come to an end. What's that all about?
1: Yes, I think we're at a point where the disconnect between the reality of where we are and the narratives pushed by government and media is probably the largest there's ever been. Um, I mean, it, it's quite stunning that on the day that we've the ONS reports the highest prevalence we've ever seen in the pandemic, with one in 13 people in England in the community having infection in the last week of March, we're now doing away with testing after having done away with things like self-isolation mandates, Mass last year. Um, I mean, it's a huge act of self harm. I think. I mean, it's very, very clear. The pandemic is far from over. Uh, You know, (laughs) transmission is the highest that it's ever been, and we are seeing the consequences. I mean, sure, we have boosters which reduce the impact, but you know, a thousand people dying every week is significant impact. The NHS is probably under the. Highest pressure it's ever been because the impact on the NHS is cumulative. It's not based on, you know, what's happening right now. It's based on what's happened over the last two years. and We're seeing huge rates of long COVID in healthcare workers, in education staff. And at this point in time, to do away with the most basic protections we have, which is essentially, you know, people who are infected not coming into workplaces or on transport in classrooms, um, seems completely reckless.
0: Those are strong words. The upside, I suppose, the government would argue is that the economy is getting back on track. People are getting back to work. But I really do fear for people who have underlying health conditions who are vulnerable and who have, it seems to me anyway, deeply, deep, and contradict me if I'm wrong, been given the signal that really they don't matter as much as the rest of society.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But, you know, I I'd go further and say it's not just the vulnerable who are at risk. I mean, certainly the vulnerable are at greater risk of severe outcomes. But things like long COVID, you know, happen in healthy people. I mean, we know of so many athletes who have been affected. And the more we hear about it, the more we know that long term outcomes like heart attacks, strokes, Uh, kidney dysfunction, neurodegeneration, so cognitive decline happens in people, you know, even with mild infections who were previously mostly healthy. So I think we need to be worried about everyone. But yes, the vulnerable people have really been thrown to the wolves because I'm clinically vulnerable myself. And for me, you know, this idea of Freedom Day has essentially meant that I need to be continuously shielding. And it's not just me. It extends to my family because my daughter can't attend gymnastics, dancing classes, all the things she used to do before the pandemic because... You know, I, I do want her to grow up with a mum. So I think uh, there is no plan for the clinically vulnerable. I mean, I think Chris Whitty, during numerous um, briefings, has been asked about this, as has government. And uh, it's very clear that clinically vulnerable people, you know, despite all the protections with the vaccine and with antivirals, can still become very ill and die and we know that the majority of deaths do occur among people who are elderly, clinically vulnerable, poor or disabled and it's something that's been completely ignored by government which is pushing this agenda of acceptable deaths when we know who those deaths occur in and it's very very unequal.
0: And from our previous conversations, Dee, Dee I know that you're no believer in a binary choice here. It's not a question of going back to lockdown or Freedom Day. Your opinion is that we should move towards a sensible way of living with COVID, but taking the, the appropriate precautions, which in your view clearly were not at the moment.
1: Absolutely. I mean, lockdowns are a failure of public health policy. Let's be clear that we've had the number of lockdowns that we've had because the government never took preemptive action or a long term view on COVID. The promises made by politicians and even some scientists that, you know, we will return to some sort of pre-pandemic normal are false. Even as society being completely open, we're not seeing that because it's not going to happen. You know, we are seeing record numbers of people ill with COVID and off work in uh well, frontline occupations, and that's affecting everybody. So, you know, you need to be honest with people that we are in a pandemic and that means long term change. It means change in infrastructure, it means change in buildings, ventilation, even the way we work. People should be allowed to work from home if they can, as they have successfully done for a while. It means wearing high grade masks, which should be provided by government in indoor environments that are high risk during periods of high community transmission. The idea that we can return to any sort of normal when we have a virus like SARS-CoV-2, which causes long term chronic illness and is highly transmissible, is false. And I think people need to be honest about that, even if it's not popular.
0: And- It seems to me that government policy, right from the earliest days of our awareness of COVID-19, has been driven as much by ideology... As concern for public health. Initially, there was a great reluctance to close down. We had the Cheltenham Racing Festival going ahead, even though coronavirus was already in our midst. We had supporters of Atletico Madrid being allowed to visit Liverpool for a European football match, even though Madrid itself was in lockdown at that time. And at any point at which there appears to have been an improvement in public health, the government has been pushed at the door to open up, to open up, as they would portray it as early as possible. But the long-term impact of that, you're suggesting has been pretty devastating for the NHS and continues to be devastating for the NHS, which, despite all the claims that we're, we're doing everything we can to prevent the NHS from being overwhelmed, in reality, it seems to me the NHS has been overwhelmed. It already is overwhelmed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the entire government strategy has been uh, short-termism. You know, it's this idea that if we remove the symbols of the pandemic and we pretend it's not happening and we create this rhetoric via the media uh, or, you know, (laughs) complicit scientists that it's not happening, it'll be fine. But it won't because ultimately it's a virus that is going to cause long-term disease and, you know, a, a big part of the economy is human capital and public health. And we're absolutely losing that. We're losing that on all fronts. I mean, 4% of healthcare workers now have long COVID. We're seeing huge rates of burnout within the NHS and huge pressures in a way that we've not seen in decades. I think most people don't realize this, but, you know, the number of people waiting for emergency care for 12 hours or more, which is associated with a high risk of death, is about I think 30 to 40 times higher than it's been in previous years and the highest we've ever seen. I mean, there are people dying in ambulances. There are people dying while waiting for emergency care diagnoses that are being missed. You know, I think people think that when the NHS is overwhelmed, there's going to be this sort of moment where you know some massive shift occurs. But when healthcare services get overwhelmed, this is what happens. Initially, there's a level of compensation. And then over time, you know, systems start breaking down. Diagnosis are missed. You know, people receive care late. People who should have survived don't end up surviving. People who should have, uh, you know, recovered fully end up disabled with chronic illness. There's no single moment in which that happens. And the NHS has been overwhelmed for a while. A lot of people think that the impact on the NHS is every moment in time. So if you're not having huge numbers of COVID admissions now, the NHS is fine. But actually, the impact on the NHS has been cumulative over two years with the huge delays we've seen in care as well as the huge impact of COVID and the burnout in healthcare workers and long COVID. And now we're seeing the impacts of all of that come together alongside the chronic underfunding of the NHS for, you know, a decade or so. And we don't really have a safely functioning NHS at the moment. Many people don't realise this, but you know, if you're in an accident or something and you need emergency care, there is no guarantee that you will get timely emergency care at this point in time. And that should scare us all and you know we need the government to do something about this urgently because having healthcare, having education, these are all basic needs that any society has to fulfill and we are not doing so.
0: And yet media whose job is to hold politicians to account and whose job is to ask them difficult questions don't seem to be focusing on these issues many of the papers anyway are celebrating the consequences of freedom day the fact that people can go out again without masks and go down the pub without having to sign in anywhere and all that obviously for many people those are real benefits but The fact that it's having this significant impact on the NHS appears to me to be being, if not overlooked entirely, then certainly massively underplayed.
1: Absolutely. And I cannot understand the reality in line with what we see in the media, it makes absolutely no sense. You know, we see these comparisons with flu saying that, you know, COVID has been defanged. But in reality, what we have is 1.5 million people, at least, and rising, living with long COVID, of whom... About 700,000 have had this for more than a year. So it's not a trivial illness in many people. It's actually disabling. I can't think of a disease that's called this level of, an infectious disease that's caused this level of disability. And of course, you know, the impacts on the NHS, the impacts on education, it's, you know, unprecedented what's happening. Even now, the number of teaching staff absent, the number of healthcare workers absent, we see it being reported. I mean, you hear healthcare workers talk, it, but they're not given a, a major platform on mainstream media. Um, and, you know, it's frankly shocking given how important healthcare is for societies that people are not aware. And they're also not aware of the long term consequence of COVID. I mean, the comparisons with flu massively underplay what COVID does to people, even people with mild infection years down the line. I mean, I hear so many celebrities dying a few months after COVID and I never see it reported that they had COVID five months before they had a heart attack or something like that and I think people don't really understand the impact is going to have years down the line. I mean we're really going to see the pandemic after the pandemic which we're beginning to see right now and we're really walking into it blindly and continuing to expose people to all the risks of this because essentially vaccination the antivirals are what we're heavily heavily relying on to entirely mitigate this and they will not mitigate it entirely.
0: Deepthi stay with us if you would please uh, this is Deepthi Gurdasani talking to us senior lecturer at Queen Mary University in London expert in clinical epidemiology if you've got a question of Deepthi and I know a lot of people are already requesting access to speak and I'll try and get to as many of you as we possibly can then I'm sure Deepthi will happily take a question or two from you my name's Adrian Goldberg and you're listening to Byline Radio from the Byline Times news reporting without fear or favor. If you want to support our work on Byline Radio or on the Byline Times podcast, where you may be listening to this on catch up, please take out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. £39 a year is all it will cost you. You get a great paper, you'll be supporting the radio the podcast byline tv and our brilliant news breaking website as well bylinetimes.com that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com i want to welcome into the conversation now safia nah safia lost her dad to covid and she now campaigns as i mentioned earlier for covid19 bereaved families for justice safia hello welcome to byline radio
2: hi thanks for having me
0: so safia just Give us a little bit of the flavour of your story, please, if it's not too painful for you to do so.
2: Of course. So um, my dad died of COVID last February 2021, Um, so the height of the second wave. Um, He was 68. He had no underlying health conditions. Um, He was Malaysian, so he belonged to a minority ethnic group. And we know that minority ethnic groups have been um, disproportionately affected by COVID. And yeah, so my brother and I were doing the shopping for my parents um, over the Christmas period. If you remember, it was really, really hard to get a delivery slot at the time. Um, So we'd go to the shops um, and get their shopping so that they didn't need to go outside. And um, we think that we caught COVID from a supermarket. It was the only place we'd been to. We were in lockdown and... um, we tried to isolate from my parents, but uh, my dad eventually tested positive a couple of days later. Um, We weren't, you know, we were worried and we knew how dangerous the virus could be. But as I said, he was a healthy 68 year old, you know, he exercised regularly, so we weren't overly concerned. Um, But he at one point started coughing up some blood. So um, was told to go into, um, to go into the hospital. And at that point, you know we we didn't that was i'd never saw him again until he died and um it was terrifying obviously for all involved but particularly for my dad he'd never been in hospital in his living memory so the in my living memory sorry so the the effect of being in a situation where you're you know surrounded by people who you can't even see their faces everyone was in mask and and these sort of hazmat suit esque um outfits for safety and protection obviously um but it was a terrifying experience for him and i know how scared he was and um i feel so guilty that that we couldn't be there for that um and so you know these stories that come out regularly now about partygate and um the lack of respect that the government have had for their own rules um hit a lot harder when you're a brief family member who couldn't be with your family during those times um and yeah, so my dad um, died around a month after testing positive for COVID. Um, and we were actually able to be with him when he passed away. Um, the hospital were absolutely amazing with us. and. So many bereaved family members have had negative experiences with the hospital um, and I can't speak to their experiences, but we had a really positive experience, as positive as it could have been. My dad um, was Muslim and he had a Muslim blessing from an imam and my mum is Catholic, so he also had a Catholic blessing from a priest, so we covered all bases. And um, and yeah, we were able to be there as they turned his respirator off. Um, but I'm still honestly living with the shock of it because um as i say he was healthy we had no reason to think that he would react so badly to having covid and um and so it is still you know even now i'm only just coming to terms with the fact that i will never see him again um, so yeah, the fact that, that COVID is in the news so much and that it really is such a regular topic of conversation, um, you know, you talk about the weather and you talk about COVID and any conversation you're having. And I understand that it's very much a shared experience, but for bereaved family members, it's particularly, um, painful and the trauma that it's caused is, um, you really cannot underestimate it. And I don't think even we don't understand the full extent of it yet.
0: It's a, a terrible human tragedy. What was your dad's name, by the way, Safiya?
2: His name was Zaharina.
0: Zaharina, yes? Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, sadly, far too many of these stories are being told out there because too many people have passed away as a result of COVID but you are now campaigning for justice
2: Mm.
0: what does justice look like for you then what lessons do we as a society need to learn from the death of your father and the many thousands more like him?
2: Well, I think there are many lessons that that could be learned, um, you know, from not locking down early enough to the NHS not being prepared. I mean, Deep T Gerdasani has also also, um, mentioned this, you know, the NHS was actually not in a great position even before we went into the pandemic. Um, So there's a lot that needs to be considered. Um, Personally, you know, I mentioned that my dad was Malaysian. He worked for the NHS for nearly 40 years, so um, he gave a lot to this country. Um, but it's really, it's very important for me. Sorry, it's a very emotional subject, obviously. Um, of but, course, State time. Um, It's incredibly important to me that the um, element the, of the inquiry that is, you know, very clear and explicitly looked at is the effect on minority ethnic groups or so-called minority ethnic groups, um, because people from minority ethnic communities like my dad were up to five times more likely to die of covid you know that's um we we a lot of us know that this is the case um but it's not something that's often talked about it's not at the forefront of conversations but really that figure is unacceptable um you know my dad as i said was muslim um And at the cemetery where he was buried, they had to use diggers to dig up his grave in front of us, you know, in real time, because that was a time saving mechanism that they had to use um, because there were so many bodies coming in every day. Um, His grave, they opened up an entirely new section of cemetery. Um, His grave is um, not landscaped yet. So it's literally a mound of earth with a plank of wood sticking out and his name and and coordinates handwritten on um, and it will eventually be landscaped but you know i think that's quite a visceral indication of how much um covid has affected the the muslim community at least um, and we know that it has affected black and minority ethnic groups to a huge extent um, and i think it is it is inconceivable that that's not explicitly mentioned in the terms of reference um, and that we don't really consider why that's the case you know a lot of people from these groups of key workers i mentioned my dad did work for the nhs Um he was retired at the time that he passed away but you know these people should not be more um more vulnerable um and it's it's really important that we understand that and it is obviously a societal and systemic issue as much as it is a covid issue um but hopefully at least hopefully we can create some sort of positive change or introspection um, through the public inquiry.
0: And you're lobbying, I know because we spoke earlier, for the chair of the public inquiry to include the impact of COVID on minority ethnic groups as as a specific part of the public inquiry, which at the moment it doesn't look as though it is.
2: No, the government have released the proposed terms of reference um, that it mentions um, groups relating to um, characteristics from the Equality Act of 2010. Um, the Equality Act of 2010 covers a wide range of groups. Um, race is one of those those groups um but also age gender and you know this is an act that was created in 2010 you know more than a decade ago so pre-pandemic um and really this terms of reference needs to be up to date and precise and um it should be reflective of the experiences that we've had in the pandemic um, and not lazy um or relying on previous um beliefs or research so um yeah it absolutely needs to be an explicit point
0: yeah, Safia, stay there with us if you can, mm-hmm. please. I want to bring Deepdy back at this point, and Deepdy, Safia touches on a really important dimension to COVID. Obviously, it, it's affected everybody in the country one way or another. But why this disproportionate impact of on people from minority ethnic backgrounds?
1: Yeah, I mean the statistics are pretty shocking on this. Um, I think the answer is. It's a combination of factors. I mean, it's it's a combination of uh, things like socioeconomic status, occupation, um, exposure. So what we find is that in minority ethnic groups, it's not just deaths that are much higher, but even infection exposure is much much higher. In fact, if you look at, um, I think if you look at exposure, it's about two to three times higher in minority ethnic groups compared to uh, in white people and. Um, And it's very, very likely a combination of all these factors, as well as, you know, structural barriers, structural racism, um, you know, people living in multi-generation households and crowded areas, all of these things combine to make it a higher risk for ethnic minorities. But of course, given that this is a conversation that the government won't even have and, uh, you know, there's been very, very little discussion about the role of structural racism in uh, outcomes within COVID. Um, it seems very, very unlikely that we can make progress on this front. I mean, COVID is ultimately a disease of inequality. Uh, I mean, it's quite shocking, but if you look at certain periods, you'll find that infection rates in most deprived populations were seven times higher than those in least deprived populations. Um, and it's one of the reasons i feel that covid policy is so behind where it needs to be because a lot of the policies are made by pe- people in relatively privileged positions who are not as much touched by the consequences of this and in many ways they're making decisions for people who are well far more vulnerable to the devastating impacts of covid in their day-to-day lives and um you know it's it's very much the privileged population making decisions for um for people who are going to be far more affected than they are I
0: want to bring in Sarah who's joining us as well tonight Sarah Walker, hello Sarah welcome to Byline Radio and you have a brother with a severe learning disability and the so called Freedom Day that many people in England have celebrated is bad news for your brother just explain why Sarah
3: Hi. Yes. Thanks for having Hi. me.
0: Welcome.
3: Yeah. Absolutely. Freedom Day for us was basically back to lockdown day. Um, I was just making a note when I was listening there. Obviously, you know, if we're talking in the statistics, um, that the death rates for people with learning disabilities in the eighteen to thirty-four year old age range was thirty times higher for people with learning disabilities than those without learning disabilities. So, um, and I really feel like our experiences that people with learning disabilities have been really forgotten about and not mentioned um, during this whole pandemic. Unfortunately, it is something that those of us that are of a major part um, you know, of the learning disability community and it's a big part of our lives, it's something that we're used to. But um, it's been a really terrifying time because, um, you know, we weren't considered at the beginning when it came to things like shielding and um, access to the vaccine. As a carer, um, I was offered the vaccine before my brother um, and I was having to ring up the doctors and say, you know, I need the vaccine to protect my brother, but he needs the vaccine more than me um you know and it just wasn't a question it just wasn't it just wasn't discussed so um we shielded with my brother um, he stayed in the house for 101 days at the beginning of the pandemic. I moved back in with my parents, um, so that between the three of us, we were providing all of his care. Um, we weren't having any of his support workers in or anything like that. Um, you know, like Safi mentioned about you know the, the terrifying sort of point of trying to get a. a Shopping delivery, and we are still sitting on the doorstep, wiping all of our shopping down with antibac, and um, before it comes into the house, because it feels like it's one of the only things left to us to try and keep ourselves safe.
0: In other parts of the UK, in Scotland, in Wales, there are still more restrictive regimes. But in England, you can travel on the bus without a mask. You can travel on a bus without a mask, even if you have COVID-19, although there has been some guidance issued on that this evening. But it's not a legal requirement. You certainly don't have to isolate if you have COVID-19. What does that say to you about uh, treatment of people with underlying health vulnerabilities like your brother
3: it's a complete lack of respect isn't it it's um it really feels like we've unfortunately moved into sort of an us versus them um situation where people who are still terrified by um the pandemic are are feeling sort of really separate from everybody else and um, horrible situation this week where one of our neighbors was um walking they'd been on a train and and they were wearing masks her and a son and um as they were coming out of the train station a woman pulled sort of her window down and shouted at them why are you wearing masks you're outside you know it's kind of become sort of even people are we're under attack for <laughs> for trying to follow um, follow the, the restrictions and keep ourselves safe so it's not even just that other people aren't doing those things it's that actually we're being criticised for doing them um, and being belittled my parents went for um, dinner at a, a pub recently and um the area that they were being shown to a table was really busy and my mum asked could we sit near the door for better ventilation and they were wearing masks and the staff member there said um you do know restrictions have ended now so you know it's, it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, restrictions have ended sadly covid hasn't
3: yes unfortunately but you know it's it's just a really weird situation where um yeah you kind of are being looked down upon for kind of still trying to keep yourself safe and um you you shouldn't have to justify (laughs) that you're trying to keep someone safe you know we are absolutely terrified um about the effect that covid would have on my brother we're having a really difficult week um my younger brother had the same genetic condition, and um, he passed away from sepsis in 2019. So um, we were only a year into, you know, our bereavement um, and loss of Sam um, when we were hit with COVID. And um, we've we've done really well at being really safe and keeping Dan safe up until this point. Um, this week. We had um, one of Dan's PA's um, who has been living extremely cautiously. Um, she was supporting Dan on Thursday and Friday, and on Saturday tested positive for COVID. Um, so you know we're on testing ourselves every single day, um, and it's you. We're living in that that absolute fear, but then. On top of that, for the past month since the announcement about the free testing um, came up, with absolutely no information about actually who was going to still have access to tests, with no information of where we could send these questions, um, you know, who do we ask whether we're going to be able to get them or not? We can't just sort of sit back, so I'd set up a petition um, because as far as I was aware, the only people that were going to be able to get tests, like my brother would be um, eligible for a free test from today onwards, um, only if he had symptoms. Well, if my brother's got symptoms, then we've failed in in the protective measures that we've been taking. Um, we don't want to find out if he has got it. We want to stop him getting it. And the way we do that is that for myself and anybody that's in close contact with him um, is able to test so that, you know, we can protect him a step before getting it. My brother's not able to wear a mask. You know, he won't tolerate anything on his face. He doesn't really approve of us wearing masks because, you know, he has a real profound and um, severe learning disability. So there's no way of us explaining to him that with wearing this because, you know he's like or oh, what you know I can't see your face I can't and it's a huge thing for communication for him to be able to you know see your smiling and all of those kind of things so um yeah it's just I have spent hours and hours and hours over the past month um trying desperately to contact um media to try and find a random celebrity with a voice that's a lot louder than mine and um, you know to speak out about we need still this access to tests at the very very bare minimum that's what we all we're asking for um you know and even i've been lucky that that has been picked up by you know some um a charity leonard cheshire and we were featured um in the metro online um but was heartbreakingly um upset to read some of the comments just saying you know why do we keep spending money on tests you're all hypochondriacs and you know it's like you're not (laughs) you're really not listening and it's it's so it's horrible to feel so much that us-versus-them kind of way of looking at things. It's really disheartening. I've lived my entire life. Sorry sorry
0: to interrupt, Sarah, but, you know, there are occasions in society, and in a very different context, I think the Russia-Ukraine war is an example of this, but what you're talking about is an example of this as well. This veneer of civilization that we have very occasionally is peeled back and you see something pretty nasty and horrible lurking underneath and some Mm -hmm. of the narrative around people like your brother has the whiff of eugenics about it and you hear people saying don't you Uh, well you know let the the strong survive they might not use that terminology Mm -hmm. that's what they're saying the strong can survive the weak well we're better off without them i know it sounds harsh and horrible but i hear that without those words being used i hear that
3: yeah, I mean, one of our hugest fears, you know, right at the very beginning, because there was all that talk um, about, you know, the sort of calculation that they were using for, um, they didn't have enough ventilators in the hospitals and um, what what sort of steps they were taking to work out who was, who was worthy of a ventilator. And um, early on, a lot of those um, steps that they were following through were very much weighted against people with, um, you know, long-term disabilities and things and so we were not only terrified that it covid would um is more likely to affect my brother but we were terrified about whether or not we'd be able to allowed in the hospital to support him um and you know that was unthinkable for a start but also you know whether or not he would be treated with as much value and respect as the general public
0: Let's bring deep back at this point, Deepti, because I'm disappointed by what Sarah has had to say. I'm not honestly shocked by it. And I do think there has been an underlying thread within our coverage in the media of COVID-19 and indeed our political response to it that has suggested that some people's lives are not as valuable as others.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the joint parliamentary report that came out on you know assessment of the covid in the first wave that showed exactly what sarah said that um death rates in people with learning disabilities are very very high and there was an inappropriate issuing of do not resuscitate orders with the reason given for this being that people were learning disabled you know so learning disability should never be a reason for not resuscitating somebody yet those orders were used it's not something that you read a lot about in the media but Um, Ableism has been very, very, very much at the heart of this. I think there was a report that came out of the ONS, I think, last year in summer that showed that about 60% of deaths uh, that happened were among the disabled. Um, And, you know, the the complete lack of any consideration of what policy means for clinically vulnerable people, for disabled people, uh, has been uh, a thread throughout the pandemic. Uh, and it's something that to date has not been addressed by government. Um, and I mean the only way I can look at it is that there is there is less value uh, assigned by our government to people who are vulnerable, to people who are disabled, um, and to people who are poor, to ethnic minorities. And when they talk about acceptable debts, they know that they're talking about these groups. And one of the things that makes them acceptable are that those debts occur among these groups for them.
0: That's a really shocking summary, but I, I feel you may be right, Deep Dee Stay with us, Deep Dee It's been uh, really interesting to hear you. We've got uh, Safiya Na with us as well, and we've got Sarah Walker. And I'm keen to get some of your experience as well if you're listening live at byline radio via twitter spaces if you do want to take part you have to take part via your phone you can listen on laptop or pc but to join in you have to do so on your phone just tap the microphone icon in the bottom left hand of your screen i know a few people have been waiting a little while and i'll try and get as many of you on as soon as we can if you're listening on catch up via the byline times podcast sadly you can't take part because It's not live for you, uh, but you can drop me an email to goldbergradio at gmail.com. And don't forget, we're part of the Byline Times stable. If you want to support our work with these broadcasts, or if you want to support the brilliant journalism of the Byline Times, then please take out a subscription. Go to bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find out how to subscribe. It's also a great news-breaking website. BylineTimes.com. There's a fantastic article there on the mo- at the moment by one of my colleagues, Sabah Salman. who has written about the way in which people with health underlying health conditions are now having to shield even more than ever because of the so-called Freedom Day in England. Do check that article out by Sabah Salman at BylineTimes.com. Let's uh, welcome one or two people who are listening to our broadcast now Uh, Azalith is going to join us in just a moment and uh, Azalith contacted me just before we went on air he's got something of uh, real concern to talk about in this conversation hello Azalith, welcome to Byline Radio
4: Thanks very much for the chance to speak. So I'm a concerned parent, um, and I've met with a lot of uh, uh, gas lighting and um, really hit a brick wall with the authorities. And I feel that my story is is a an interesting case study that's relevant to everyone. Um, so in my school, there's, I won't name the school, but it's a primary school in Edinburgh. And there's been ongoing very high COVID rates. Um, so to try and help the school um recognizing that you know it was out of control in the school i offered to donate air filters HEPA air filters to the school because obviously you know COVID one of the key things to know about COVID is that it's airborne and um, the head teacher uh, you know, refused to take the air filter because she said um, it's an equity issue. And I said, What do you mean? And she said, She said, it wouldn't be fair if our kids were more safe than other kids. Um, so obviously, I wasn't satisfied with that response. And I saw that the Scottish government had announced five million for air filters for schools. Um, but I've since learned that this is just complete gaslighting because um, my experience was with the schools it shows that they're just not allowed in any circumstance. Uh, the evidence I have to back that up is um, Edinburgh Council commissioned a-, a confidential report with Napier University who inspected schools in Edinburgh and they found that my school and other schools uh, were well outside the safety levels allowable for schools. So for example, they have 3000 CO2 and high hu- high humidity in my school, and that corresponds with high infection rates in the schools. And even in my case, I mean, the Scottish government claims that they're following the SAGE guidance. Um, and I even had a member of SAGE who wrote the guidance, Professor Cathnobes intervene to say that they're not following the guidance. And they've just disregarded that. Um, And the last point to make is um, how unaccountable the authorities are. So I've made a complaint and after many months they finally responded. And I've now made a complaint to the Public Services Ombudsman. But the Ombudsman has said that due to the COVID emergency, they won't even allocate the case to a worker for 11 months. So they're just completely unaccountable. And the Scottish Government can always give the excuse that they're following UK policy. So they're just utterly unaccountable. And meanwhile, uh, there's over 15,000 child infection cases in Edinburgh, and that matches, that's the same sort of number they're getting even in smaller local authorities. So literally as a parent, they're just completely unaccountable.
0: Azalith, I will address the point that you've raised with Deepti Gurdasani in just a moment. But more generally aside from the schools issue scotland is taking a more cautious approach than england but it still has one of the highest rates of COVID infection in the uk why is that do you think
4: well i think the schools the schools example is is a key thing because you know even if even if a person is of the opinion children aren't affected or if they minimize the effect on children people can't logically uh, dismiss the impact that they have on community transmission rates. And if you look at the figures in Edinburgh, uh, you know, the areas with the highest school infection have have a corresponding high community transmission rate. And it's quite clear from my experiences with the authorities in Scotland that, you know, they're simply turning a blind eye and covering up the child infection rates. And even when someone tries to use the mitigations, uh, they, they just refuse them. You know, they're clearly um, just allowing the situation to just run rife in schools. And it's had a huge impact on my family right now. I mean, as you can probably imagine, we're very careful. Well, even we've got COVID now. My daughter's had COVID for six days. You know, she's missed her birthday party. She missed a ballet performance she was going to do. And that was from a, a an infection she got in the school. And, you know, these things are, are big moments in a, in a six-year-old's life. And also we're just one of the many people doing the daily COVID test to see if we get it next. You know, it has a huge impact on people beyond Mm -hmm. even just health, you know.
0: Uh, thank you. I know you've sent me some supporting information as well, which I will uh, look at at my leisure. But thank you very much indeed for getting in touch with us. Dick, uh, uh, a couple of things there. Uh, one is, uh, I'll come to Azale's point about the schools. I am intrigued about Scotland's relatively high infection rates, given that it is adopting a more cautious approach than England.
1: Yeah, so what Scotland did was it adopted a more cautious approach with Omicron when it was spreading. So it had a smaller Omicron wave, the original Omicron wave, but then it started easing uh, its a very, very cautious approach. So what it ended up doing was sort of delaying the original Omicron wave and what it ended up with was a much, much bigger BA2 wave. I mean, that just highlights that, you know, it's not about maintaining measures for short periods of time. That's exactly why you need long-term change, because unless you have long-term maintenance of high-grade mask mandates and ventilation, what you'll end up with is, you know, at the point of time you are assuming caution, you will control infection. But, you know, England had a much larger first wave, developed a level of population immunity, and then had a second wave, but it wasn't, massively larger than the first wave. It was about equal. Uh, whereas in Scotland it was much larger because the measures eased much, much more during that period and then this highly transmissible variant caught up.
0: And what about this schools issue then? Azalith concerned about the lack of ventilation, indeed the, the the lack of apparent desire to have ventilation in, in the schools? Yeah,
1: I mean, school policy in Scotland has been terrible. I mean, I, I can say maybe it's been slightly better than England, but you know, it's it's generally. I think the whole Scottish response has been guided by this idea that children initially didn't transmit, schools weren't involved in transmission, which we know is false, and then that children weren't impacted, which also we know is false. So they never made these sort of long term changes. There was this idea about carbon dioxide monitors and ventilation, but like in England, you know, the ventilation aspect never actually came to pass. You know, even in England, for example, only 3% of schools now have air filtration devices or are considered eligible for air filtration devices. And part of that reason is Uh that the threshold for eligibility is so high. It's much higher than other countries. It's much higher than CDC recommendations uh, recommendations by other bodies, even by the Health and Safety Authority here for places where there's continuous talking. Actually, carbon dioxide levels must be much lower. But... You know, there's been nothing done about ventilation. And by design or default, the policy has very much been herd immunity in children because they're still the least vaccinated group and the most exposed group and one of the groups which has (laughs) the most rapidly rising rates of long COVID. I mean, we've seen tripling of long COVID in children in a matter of five months. But it's something that we never hear about.
0: And uh, Deepthi, one takeaway from this conversation from me this evening has been about the impact of long COVID because you're saying to us look yes children may have impacts which appear to be less significant in the short term they may get over it more quickly and so on but obviously they can transmit and they can experience long COVID themselves and it's this impact of long COVID which you're suggesting is being massively underplayed and which is actually really quite significant in terms of long-term health outcomes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when people talk about impacts on kids, what I hear is they always compare impacts on children with adults. I mean, frankly, you shouldn't need tens of thousands of children to die to take action. Children die less than adults. That's a fact. And that's how it should be. But if you even look at deaths from COVID-19, they're actually higher than almost all other childhood illnesses. Even if you consider the pre-vaccine era, that's true. And if you look at long COVID, I mean, it's higher than almost any infectious disease I can think of. 120,000 children living with long COVID for four weeks or more. And for a child, four weeks or more is significant. And 21,000 now who've had symptoms for more than a year. I mean, imagine having a disease like that and not even considering urgently vaccinating children when you have vaccines available. I mean, that's where we are in our society, where children are being massively impacted by this. And that's not even talking about the impacts in terms of educational disruption, which are huge, as well as orphanhood. I mean, 12,000 children have lost a primary carer in the UK, um, you know, that to COVID. And, and the impacts of you know, early bereavement like that cannot be overstated. But yet we treat children as if they live in this isolated bubble where they're somehow untouched by an ongoing pandemic and we don't do the least bit we can to protect them.
0: Azalith, I'm going to move on because I know we've got a lot of people who want to speak, but uh, thank you for raising that. It's a really important issue and good to speak to you in Edinburgh. Thank you. Uh, Let's speak to Mark. Hello, Mark. Good evening.
5: You are right? Uh, Hello, good evening. Um, Yes, it's it's been a, a a fascinating and sometimes at times terrifying sort of uh, you know discussions um, I've got a couple of things to say really and um, it sort of delves into education and immunosuppressant uh, patients because my wife is immunosuppressed she's also a member uh, you know ethnic minority um, and a teacher and this week we have had covid in our household for the first time uh since since uh, the first the first uh, outbreaks you know we'd, we'd never had it before um we've been very careful uh we had to shield until august 2020 um <clears throat> virtually not go out anywhere at all um and then um i've been very careful since then as well um uh At football matches, I've wore the mask during the game for the majority of the times uh because I didn't want to bring anything back and, and and give it and then unfortunately, my wife um had had to take some medication which which caused the skin sort of um eruption which made it very difficult for her to wear a mask. And I think that's possibly where she got it at a, at a small school in where well, she works in a in a small pupil referral unit in Nuneaton in, in Warwickshire in the UK. And um, from then on, I, I mean, the, the school now has no tests left. Um, no one's testing there. The school, the college itself, didn't close down last week, um, even though there was staff off with it, uh, TAs teachers and TAs and students all suffering and and it was it was kept open um and that worries me going forward uh, the the sort of uh, you know the adding to what what uh Azalith was saying about about the schools in Scotland you know it's kind of uh, that's a concern but yeah it, it's been a it's been a, a difficult week I'd never had COVID before um it's been washed me out to be honest uh, from a lot of the days even up till today and this is my fourth or fifth day now of being positive so i think i think you know to think that it's just all over is is completely short-sighted and and, and quite reckless it's this uh let the bodies pile a high sort of uh, attitude isn't it towards people who are who are vulnerable
0: Yeah, that's an intriguing phrase, isn't it? That was what Dominic Cummings claimed Boris Johnson had said at an earlier phase of the pandemic. Boris Johnson has earlier denied it. Safia, you know, that phrase I've heard banded around, let the bodies pile high. I don't know whether Boris Johnson said it or not, but Mm. (laughs) there's been something about the government's approach that has made you feel that... The, the deaths of ordinary people in this country has not been always considered to be the tragedy that it really is.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, whether or not Boris Johnson said, let the bodies pile high, I think his actions have spoken for him um, and the actions of his government. I think um, even with all of these scandals that come out, as painful as it is, especially for bereaved family members, um, it's not surprising i really don't find it particularly surprising um which says a lot you know this is these are laws um and they were life-saving regulations that they put in place but it's um i think the way that the government has treated bereaved family members and it's come up a lot more recently as we're talking about the terms of reference um has been with a sort of i think they find us irritating you know we keep banging on about the pandemic which you know people just want to get back to normal now We're talking about, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg trying to divert the conversation to um, whether they were cutting cake or not and sharing it. You know, that's not really what we're worried about. We are worried about the fact that they were not paying attention to the regulations that they put in place at a time where they were very much needed. Um, And there's been absolutely no support for bereaved family members. Um, The the minimal support that we've been able to find um, We have had to look for ourselves, join waiting lists, um, and it's unacceptable. You know that over 180,000 people have died in this country, and um, and so there are hundreds of thousands of bereaved family members up and down the country. There absolutely should be support and an acknowledgement of what we've lost. You know, this is an experience that we've all um, shared, and that we're still having to go through and i really sympathize with um mark and the people that were speaking earlier for it must be really terrifying to you know know that your your family members are at risk in that way i i, I empathize because i know what that's like and um and the government just, i don't think that they care i think it's very much a um I mean, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic Boris Johnson shaking hands with people and saying that they had COVID and he didn't catch it. It's a it's a game to them, um, and I think they are just incredibly immature.
0: <laughs> well, we were told, weren't we, that after he had had coronavirus himself that he took it much more seriously apparently he flirted with death but we Mm. seem it seems to me to be back at the stage that we were right at the start of the pandemic which is this desire in a sense for it to not be here and kind of almost (laughs) a, a wishing it away
2: yeah and no one feels that way more than people that have been bereaved by covid you know it has absolutely ripped open our lives. And of course we want to move on, but it makes no sense to move on without thinking about the past and without some, some introspection about what we've lost, how we've lost it and how we move forward, um, in an informed way and protecting people who are more vulnerable and the NHS, we talk about the NHS like this mythical symbol. Um, and it, it unites us, you know. People across the across the political spectrum um, have support for the NHS now. That's a wonderful thing. But you know, it's a big organisation that needs the support of the government in real um, real ways, you know, financial ways and means. Um, I think that there's a lot of, and the media is in some way responsible for this. There's a lot of um, playing around with the. Um, exciting zeitgeisty stories of the moment um for example the scandals and the parties with also an appetite to move forward but that doesn't help us because we need to be concentrating on um what happens you know for the people that are the most vulnerable and what happens to the people that have lost so much during the pandemic you know we cared about these people um during the pandemic and they're they're still here um it's strange i understand that the media you know needs to um uh, react to uh public consciousness, but it's um it's important and it's really um it's key for the way that we we move forward in a in a way that's successful and productive.
0: Let's bring in Corona zero who's joining us now at byline radio. Hello Corona zero welcome to byline radio. you're right
6: hi, thank you so much for letting me on. My name's Simon. I'm a scientific uh, low COVID activist from Switzerland. And I'd just like to take this opportunity to extend my gratitude and my thank you to Dr. Gurdasani. Uh, I'm from Switzerland, as I said, but I'm also reading our tweets. And um, it's just great to see that there's a lot, some more sane scientists advocating for sane policies and um and also Byland Radio I really like to listen to you and get informed about British politics so thank you and I'd like to say something that the the thing with air filters that happened to the gener- uh, gentleman in in Edinburgh that actually is also happening in Switzerland there's you know as you know Switzerland's quite a wealthy country with quite a lot of wealthy middle class people that try to donate air filter co2 sensors and they were mostly rejected so we we share a lot of similarities and i think as the people from the great barrettin declaration so that's basically our opponents the people of the herd immunity people are internationally linked i would use this to like to use this as an appeal to get more connected internationally because we need to also fight this virus scientifically and internationally thank you so much for the time
0: uh simon thank you very much indeed for joining us from uh, switzerland uh analyst is with us as well on bionine radio hello analyst
7: hello thank you so much for sharing the space and time with us my name is dennis i am involved in COVID support groups um just want to drop a little line if you're having problems with long COVID, please join long COVID support group it's an excellent support group um Wanted to begin by saying, I'd like to challenge people to change their, the way that they speak about restrictions, because from a scientific perspective, those are actually protections. Um, wanted to say, Dr. deepthi thank you so much. Oh, she dropped off. Um, well, regardless, Dr. deepthi is uh, fantastic in terms of countering the corporate press, Um, narratives she's been inspiring in terms of um, speaking to the assumptions that the corporations are posing in their interviews and uh, has done really amazing work in terms of providing some clarity in in these matters also want to say to the other two speakers thank you so much for sharing your testimony very sorry for your losses
0: Analyst, thank you. I, I want to bring in uh, Deepti on that point, and uh, deeply, it's a, a really interesting thing that that caller has raised there, the question of language, isn't it? Because if you talk about restrictions versus freedoms, most of us, I think, instinctively would veer towards freedom. Who wouldn't want freedom rather than a restriction if however you call a restriction a protection suddenly something which is pretty unattractive suddenly starts seem seeming quite sensible i think deep is uh, having one or two connection problems but i'll bring in sarah at that point whose brother of course needs protection and i think it's a uh, this this point of language sarah around protection is a good thing that sounds positive doesn't it restriction sounds like a bad thing
3: it's amazing it's such a sh- it's such a small change actually but yeah like i would definitely um feels a much more powerful um way of changing the narrative
7: seems like dr dipty is having some some kind of...
0: Yeah, and we're having uh, issues with uh, getting to, to, uh, uh, to chat with us, but I, th- I think the point has been uh, well made. Hello, Terry. Hi. Hello,
8: Terry. Welcome How are you, you doing? Well, I think we have both of us right now. Sorry, Terry. Oh, okay. Um, I just heard about, if you can hear me okay, because I yeah? had COVID back in September uh, the 3rd I've had like seven months now, and uh, my main problems that affected is my, I have slurred speech, balance issues, a little bit of vision, and my coordination is a little bit bad. But I, I've had an MRI scan and a spinal tap, and they find nothing wrong. They were chicken first if it was a the, uh, the um, uh, what do you call it, stroke or not. But I did not have a stroke or a TIA. I don't know if there's any information you can talk to, they never had these issues that I have. I did not lose taste or smell, and I had no breathing issues. I have the bad balance and the um, slurred speech and the swallowing issues and a little bit of vision.
0: And Terry, we can hear your speech as we're chatting now. Before last September, was your speech
8: normal? Yep, it was fine until I had COVID. I had no problems. I was running about three or four miles a day and working at least four times a week. I'm 51 years old right now and I cannot run at all because of my balance is not very good. And have you been
0: diagnosed with long COVID?
8: Um, not really technically uh, because Yes, the, the neurologist, neurologist, sorry, we call it, but, um, I don't think anyone actually said it like for sure, for sure, but all the symptoms came on like I had the first two weeks were like had the flu, the bone aches, cold chills, and the high fever and then the third week I went to get out of bed and I fell on the floor and I had kind of like it um, vertigo symptoms and the room was spinning and couldn't even see my wife right in front of me for about a week and then my vision got better but the other stuff the bonds and the surge speech stay with me all this time.
0: Wow, Terry. Let me bring in Dr. Gurdasani at this point. A deep D. Obviously, it's very difficult to do a, a long-distance diagnosis, but do you recognise these symptoms?
1: I mean, long COVID is associated with two hundred or more symptoms, and and that's the th- the problem with the virus. It can affect every part of the body. So it can affect the brain. It can affect peripheral nerves and muscles. So, you know, if it isn't a central nervous system problem, it could be something to do with the muscles or the peripheral nerves. And I think this is a difficulty, you know, a lot of routine tests don't really pick up um, long COVID because we know so little about it. And we're sort of in a period where more research is being done and clinicians also learning about, you know, the sort of tests that that detect these problems. And, and we are kind of you know, far from getting to the point where we can probably satisfactorily treat patients. So I feel, I mean, I completely understand Terry's frustration. It must be very, very hard to have this illness that you, I guess that nobody seems to understand. And, you know, you don't fully understand what is causing it, what the prognosis is, and how it will be treated. And it's i mean it's it's a very concerning prospect and I, i'm sorry I, I don't think i can help more here but um i i can certainly say that you know given that it affects other systems as well perhaps they should be looking at you know peripheral nerves muscles and doing other tests apart from mris to try and detect the cause
4: mm.
0: um thank you terry i'm sorry to hear about your situation but it's uh it, it it is a as dr gerdisani says it's 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 a very very novel condition long covid deepy i wanted to touch on this question as well of of how we describe restrictions or protections? It's such a minor point of language at one level, but it opens up a completely different world of understanding in terms of how we deal with COVID-19.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't think it's a minor point at all. And I think it's one that the government has used. I mean, when we think about masks as restrictive, we need to remember that's not how they're thought of in many other countries. And this idea of masks being associated with restrictions and you know the idea of uh, anti-masking being freedom has very much come from actually members of our government. I mean, I remember Sajid Javid describing uh, shielding as, as cowering, and you know the idea that masks were restricted very much came from members of government who wouldn't, like <laughs> Boris Johnson, who wouldn't even wear them in hospitals or on transport. Um, and I think they've been sort of branded as such by politicians coming down to media as such, and then been sort of put out as Um, these sort of symbols of restrictions when indeed in many countries masks have been used for many many years as symbols of looking out for each other as symbols of community where people protect each other from respiratory diseases uh, which is you know how public messaging has been in many countries about protecting each other so this whole idea of masks being associated with restrictions I think we have to really ask where it comes from because I don't believe it comes from the public the public has overwhelmingly in every poll showed support for mask wearing, even on Freedom Day. So, um, and I think this has sort of been weaponized in some way by government. Uh, and I think for them, it's been about removing symbols of the pandemic. You know, if you don't see masks around, if you don't see case numbers because you stop testing, you know, the pandemic disappears from the public mind. Um, and I think it's been very much a deliberate strategy rather than something that's just happened by chance.
0: And that deliberate policy then is driven, what, by ideology? Again, just a, a desire to live in, in a, a kind of more laissez-faire way perhaps than than you would appreciate? I,
1: I think part of it is ideological, but, I, you know, if you look at the, all the evidence, and it took me a while to sort of think about it this way, this whole pandemic seems to have been a cynical attempt by the government to sort of corrupt, um, uh, to sort of, I guess, profit from the pandemic, you know, things like the immense scandal, the PPE scandal, awarding contracts to, you know, friends, as well as erosion of actual liberties, like, you know, the uh, the bills that are being passed right now banning the right to pr- protest, erosion of democracy, um, you know, uh, of, of refugees the stuff that's happening with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, if you look at it, the pandemic has been used by the government for a a massive power grab. And our democracy, institutions of accountability and independent institutions, like for example, the Judicial Review Bill, all of them have been eroded during this period. So I think part of it is ideological, but part of it is this idea of putting personal gain, economy and power ahead of public health. I don't think this government ever cared about public health and I think it's a mistake to think that this is an information problem. It's not an information problem for the aims of government. Had they been them profiteering from what happened, they have achieved those aims.
0: Analyst wants to make a comment on this. Analyst, yeah, what would you like to say?
7: Thank you. So to speak to the notion of um, government officials' Being, I don't even know how to phrase this. I'll just get to the point. Um, In the United States, the CDC director um, has branded masking as a scarlet letter. Um, But then you observe her actions, and she was uh, testifying at hearings recently, remotely, not in front of, not in the same room with all the other people, if you follow the press if she is in um she is in a setting like a healthcare facility or something she is masked so you have to look at the words versus the actions always wise advice i would say um corona zero
0: yeah do you want to comment on that
6: Hi thank you very much yeah uh, again dr Gordasani if you didn't hear me thank you very much for all your work and secondly to um, you know the narratives are quite similar in britain and in switzerland where i'm an activist and actually what's very important to me what i always say there is no healthy economy without healthy people because economy needs stability there might be personal profiteering like in britain but for a healthy economy you need healthy people with thousands or millions of people have long covid there's no healthy economy and i think we need to break this uh, we need to break this this narrative of public health versus economy imagine if we go back to cholera days and we had bad water and people were dying that wasn't good having sanitation increased increased our economy massively. We need to break these narratives. Thank you very much.
0: Well, no, uh, you've just touched on, I think, a really important point as well in relation to the world of work i mean many people have discovered the ability to work remotely we work remotely now on a scale that we never thought was possible before and it's an opportunity to radically rethink the world of work and that will have economic impacts of course your high streets where there are sandwich shops or bars that rely on office workers might struggle and the whole office Building sector might struggle, but there would be gains in other ways, not least in reducing our reliance on the car and our reliance on the carbon economy. This has been a perhaps once in a lifetime opportunity to rethink these things, and yet the government's mantra seems to be to get us all back into the office or into the factory as soon as possible. I don't know if you've got a thought on that, Deep Deep, but it just strikes me, you know, here was an opportunity... And yet we are being funneled back into life as it was before, when for many people, the ability to work from home was a great advantage, more flexible hours, more family friendly, not without its downsides, you know, things that would have to be worked through both for individuals and for society. But it was a moment in time. And that moment in time already seems to have passed.
1: Yeah, I think the assumption is, again, that, you know, they're doing the sensible thing for public health, but actually they aren't. And it's very, very clear that all their policies are around very, very short-term economic gain or gain for whatever, allies, donors, etc. You know, so they're essentially thinking, again, about rentals for landowners, etc., etc. It makes perfect sense to allow people to work from home. It's much better for the climate as well. So, you know, I mean, again... (laughs) <laughs> the aim here isn't public hell. It never was.
0: Gemini is with us on byline radio. Hello, Gemini. Is it Gemini Brian? Hello, Gemini. What? Brian,
9: welcome. Well, I, I, I think because what it is with, with government, they just they just want to they just to me they just want to fill their own pockets. I had a problem at the beginning of this pandemic. I lost two relations, two relations, two relatives to it. Both, both relatives, like, as the government's been told before, it, is it was all coming from, from children, what was doing it all. Because I had two relatives, both teachers, both of no age at all, both working with children all day long, all week. They both became ill, uh, and on a Saturday, day after Friday's school finished, both came ill on a Saturday, both got taken to hospital, both from Milton Keynes, they was taken to hospital on a Sunday, They had tests on a Monday. By the Thursday, there was both they both died. Couldn't go near 'em the husbands, the families, nothing, nobody could go near 'em. They couldn't go to funeral. This was on the 24th of March. They both went. And they're all... What gets me is they've enjoyed themselves. They've had all the parties. They've done all this. They've done all that. I live in Sunderland at the moment. Well, I've been in Sunderland for 12 years. I have my, fat, my dad, what lives in Wigan, near Manchester. I went... He, he suffers with broncholasma, COPD, emphysema, he lives on his own, and it took me, because I wouldn't wouldn't risk going down, because my wife, I live with my wife, I I look after her, because she has bilateral Parkinson's disease, and it took me, what gets me, it took me four months contacting people This was beginning at pandemic To see if I could go down and look after my dad Because he lives on his own And it took four months of emailing Government, government people uh, Police, I, I emailed the local Durham police where I live And it was taking weeks upon weeks to get replies off them And I finished up, the only reply I got off them was basically telling me as I could drive down, they wouldn't stop me driving down, but if I got stopped, I'd get an instant fine and returned back, sent back all back to my own home. Not to my dad, where I wanted to go to look after him. And he's seventy-nine years old. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I want to bring in uh, Sophia on that. Thank you, uh, Gemini Brian. Uh, Sophia, you know this. Uh, I, I know this. You, you perhaps pales into comparison with losing your your dad. Absolutely
2: not. No. Th-
0: th- th- I was going to say that this sense of one rule for them and one rule for another just, you know, really does rankle people, and, and perhaps mm-hmm. to a degree that isn't still isn't properly appreciated by the the mainstream political commentators.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm so sorry for your losses, Gemini. So I don't know your name, but um mm-hmm. yeah, that's sorry. absolutely Brian, yeah, I'm so so sorry. That's awful. Um and yeah, to answer your question, it's it's bizarre when you think about it. And it feels not only that there's one rule for us and one rule for them, but also that there's, I feel like we're on different planets, and there seems to be a public consensus um, that the government haven't done enough, that they haven't obeyed their own rules. Um, you know, families have lost loved ones, and it's the country is grieving at the moment. You know, we've experienced an awful, awful loss, and um, and yet the government have not only been celebrating, um, but they've also carried on you know our prime minister is still in power and despite the 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 negative feeling towards the government there's actually been no accountability um you know people and journalists are holding them to account but it's hard to get any um to see any real results or change um so yeah it does feel like that and then when you look at you know the cost of living crisis energy prices soaring as of today It really feels like there is a kind of upper tier of society and that there is the rest of us. Um, And I don't know what's going to happen to the rest of us. It it feels like a um, dystopian novel, to be honest. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Brian, I didn't mean to make light of your loss, by the way, and you do have my sympathies for that. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, uh, Brian Gemini.
9: Yeah, Yeah, thanks for letting me join.
0: Uh, Good to hear from you, man. Take care, mate. Uh, Mordecai is with us from uh, Washington, D.C., I believe. Hello, Mordecai.
10: Hey, Adrian. How are you doing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, One of the things – I'll just make this comment – one of the things that has come up uh, since the pandemic started and continues to happen is the um, uh, protocols or rules per jurisdiction. Here in the U.S., There are federal rules about um, masking and uh, vaccines, et cetera. And then you come down to the state, and they may um, be the same or different. Then you come down to the county, and they may be the same or different. And then you get down to the city. And even you can go further to... individual places for instance my wife is a an assistant director at a nursery school and their rules about children two three four-year-olds being required to wear masks is different than the rules for um, elementary schools or high schools and so that complicates matters quite a bit and parents really parents and just general individuals for uh forgetting schools uh, it's it's really made uh it's really frustrated people and therefore i think there's a lot of pushback on what to do and whose rules uh i'm gonna follow i just want to toss that out
0: Uh, Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. I mean, here in the UK, we have different governments across the four nations of the United Kingdom, uh, and England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland all have their own rules around COVID. And then within that, within each nation, you will, as you suggest, have different rules for different schools, primary, secondary, sixth form, and so on. There has been a lack of kind of cohesion, really. And, uh, Deep, we were talking the other day Sam Bright from Byline Times and I about the test and trace scheme as well the fact that that was outsourced and there was an opportunity to tap into the existing public health network across the country but instead that was outsourced to a private company 37 million quid spent on that to no great effect according to MPs on the Public Accounts Committee who looked into it so there has been sadly a fragmented response to this and obviously Mordecai is talking about the United States but here in the UK there's been a fragmented response which hasn't helped
1: Yes I mean here actually we've had almost the opposite problem because what The government has done is, you know, it centralized a test and trace system, which was a huge mistake because contact tracing should always be local. And that was something pointed out again and again. But beyond that, it also really scuppered the ability of local authorities to respond. So there were points at which, for example, schools in December 2020 wanted to close down because very high transmission was happening. And um, I think the DfE said that they would potentially take legal action against schools uh, who actually knew the best thing to do to protect children. Very recently, our education minister, Nadim Zahavi, also said that he would take a move to ban masks from schools if they were to impose them. So there's been a huge amount of interference from governments in local policy. And in a pandemic, when there's infectious disease spread, you need local authorities to be able to take action, which is something that has been massively eroded during the pandemic
0: Sarah I just want to wrap up really and talk about your situation with your brother if you've got one plea that you could make to the government and in your case I guess it's the English government on behalf of your brother what would that be
3: (laughs) that's a big question Hmm. um you know Obviously, at the moment, um, the the main question is about the sort of access to testing and things. But I think that I really feel like there needs to be somewhere that we can put our questions and our concerns. So, um, you know, with a member of our team testing positive for COVID this week you know, who do we ring about, you know, what what number do we call if it's out of hours, if we suspect that, you know, Dan's got COVID. Um, Supposedly the guidance yesterday was that um, actually we will be able to get asymptomatic tests um, for the PAs twice a week, but there aren't any online. So where do you put that? You know, there's literally no nowhere that we know of and we're completely isolated. you know, all of the different things I follow on social media and stuff, all along it's, you know, parents, carers and people saying, well, what? how long does this last for? And et cetera, et cetera. There's nowhere to get information.
0: Mm. Well, listen. Stay in touch with us, Sarah. And I know Sabah Salman has written uh, about your situation in, at byline dot com, mm-hmm. and you, you've got a friend in Byline Radio. So let us know how oh, the situation's you. getting on. So good luck. Okay, good luck you to them. you, Ben. Thank you so much. And Safia, thank you so much for sharing the story of your family and you. of the loss of your dad Um, you've talked about wanting to change the terms of reference for the public inquiry so that the specific focus given to the the tragic outcomes for so many people from minority ethnic backgrounds Uh, anything else that, that you're campaigning on around that?
2: well, we're all looking, so, as a group um we're consulting with the chair of the inquiry um so the inquiry will cover absolutely everything, and um different people can speak to different elements of the pandemic just through their experiences so but it will be hopefully um and we're um campaigning for it to be a very thorough inquiry that covers everything from you know the initial stages, how prepared we were, which is obviously crucial um through to um, the 111 system, um, test and trace, um, everything, and then obviously this end result and how we're how we're dealing with the pandemic now. And it is so crucial that this gets off the ground quickly because, as we've heard, um, people are dealing with long COVID. A lot of people um, are nervous about the way that we're the way that um the government have implemented or not implemented any rules um around covid so um yeah it's important that it is very much still in public consciousness that we're talking about the inquiry and that um, we push it forward
0: safia please stay in touch with us as well and uh, let us know about the the next stage in your fight we're with you all the way on bar radio thank Thanks you very much uh, and a final word to uh, dr Deepthi Ghirdasani. So uh, the question posed at the top of this broadcast and podcast, Deepthi, was kind of, where are we now? W- where do you think we need to be next?
1: I think we're at a critical juncture <laughs> Deep <genre>. sigh. <laughs> as, a, as a society, I think we really need to reflect on, you know, are we a society that's going to be forward-looking, progressive, accept the reality of where we are and respond and adapt to it, or are we going to remain in denial and essentially throw people who are vulnerable and disabled to the wolves? Um, and I really, really hope that we will decide that we are a society that wants to do what we can to protect people, which means, you know, wear high-grade masks, protect yourself, protect others, you know, employers need to look at people working from home if they need to, if it's easier for them, as well as having basic building standards in every building, workplaces, schools, um, businesses. You know, we need to really really adapt to the virus wishing it away isn't going to work um, because it's definitely adapting and if we don't adapt to it then more and more people will suffer and more and more people will get ill and we will only understand the consequences years later and we really really need to take precautions now not a decade later.
0: Deepti, I'm really grateful for your time this evening. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time as well. Really great to speak to you. That's Dr. Deepti Gurdasani. My name's Adrian Goldberg. You've, listening, you've been listening to Byline Radio or listening to the catch-up episode on the Byline Times podcast and really appreciate everybody taking part. We've had calls from County Durham. We've had calls from Switzerland, from Warwickshire, from the United States and we've had some real expert insight as well. So uh, thank you very much to everybody who's taken part and uh, just please spread the word on social media. And if you want to support the work that we do on Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll find details at our wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com and I should say as well, on the website there are brilliant articles about COVID-19 from my colleague Sam Bright who has done so much to expose the PPE scandal. Nafiz Ahmed, who's written about the Great Barrington Declaration, this kind of right-wing herd immunity notion, which has had so many followers in the UK and which has got all kind of links and influences in high places. Definitely worth reading Nafiz's work. And Sabah Salman, who has written about the impact on those with medical vulnerabilities of our supposed covid freedom so well we're checking out at bylinetimes.com and that's also where you'll find details of how to subscribe thanks very much indeed for listening stay tuned to at byline radio on twitter that's where you'll find details of our next broadcast we're taking a very flexible approach to things kind of on an as and when basis but pretty frequent as well so uh, do stay tuned and uh, i'll see you all again soon thank you good night take care